0: All right. Well, if you will turn your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter two. Deuteronomy chapter two. If you're using one of the red pew Bibles, you can find that on page 146. This morning we're going to be looking at verses one through 25. So Deuteronomy chapter two, looking at verses one through 25. As you're turning now, I want to ask a quick question. How many of you are familiar with the Oregon Trail? Okay, I've seen some hands. All right, so I know I first heard about it because of uh, the computer game that I played as a kid. Um, <clears throat> for a while, I was really convinced that getting scurvy was something I had to be worried about. <laughs> well, if you're not familiar with the Oregon Trail, you'll know that what you need to know about it is simply that it was a path that settlers uh, traveled in the 1800s to get from the eastern part of the U.S., starting in in uh, Missouri, and traveling to new places and new opportunities out west. Uh, the trail itself spanned 2,170 miles. And as long as it was, it opened up new a new whole new world for the families who were daring enough to try it. And so for about 50 years, about 400,000 miners, farmers, ranchers, and business owners worked their way west on it. But for all of the benefits, the risk of the trail was real. First of all, it was a long way to travel. It's not like you could just hop in a car or in a plane and and fly there. For most people, it was a one-way trip because the logistics of returning back east were just so difficult. And on top of that, the way itself was filled with all sorts of dangers. It's estimated that about 4% of the people who set out on the trail actually died on it whether that was from disease or raised by Native Americans, being run over by wagons, gunshot wounds, drowning in river crossings, all sorts of different things. The way through the American wilderness was dangerous, but for those who stayed on the path, the prize at the end was worth it. This morning, we are back in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're listening to Moses recount the history of the nation uh, of Israel back to the people, Uh, specifically covering the time after the people had rebelled against God and by refusing to go into Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. So for 40 years, they had wandered in the wild places that surrounded Mount Seir, Moab, and the land of Ar. The cost of the first generation's sin against God was high. But despite the curse of their rebellion, we see in this passage that God did not abandon his people. He actually made a way for them, a path for his people through the wilderness, and he brought them to the destination of the land, the land of his blessing. So in this passage, we're going to see how Moses recounts how God actually went with his people into their affliction. He didn't leave them on their, to their own devices. He preserved them, and as such, we see that he preserved his own covenant promise to them and to their fathers as well. As we study this passage together, we're not just listening to Moses give us a history lesson. We're actually becoming witnesses to the persistence of God's mercy and grace and love. And as such, we're able to gain a better grasp through this passage of the commitment God has towards his people. And so, as we study this, we're going to be able to take lessons from this text about what it means to trust God as he fulfills his promises to us in Christ so as we come to our text this morning let's come expectantly to God's word and let's be eager to receive his instruction and grow in grace together if you will please stand with me as I read our passage this morning that's Deuteronomy chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 and then reading through verse 25 this is the word of the Lord Moses says, "Then we returned and journeyed into the wilderness, in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, "You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful." Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you, must, you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows your going through the great wilderness. These forty years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Azion Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished." So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession." It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great and many as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avivim, who lived in in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtorim, who come from Kaphtor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, as we look at this passage, the main idea that I want to present to you this morning from it is this. That as we we wait on the fulfillment of God's salvation promises, let us walk in the way he has set before us. Let us walk in the way that he has set for us. The treasure that we as believers have in Christ is something that we enjoy now. But it is also something that we are eagerly awaiting to arrive in its fullness the reality of our salvation, the holiness of Christ, the presence of God with us in the Holy Spirit, the rule and the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God. These are all present and powerful realities which are here and now. And yet they are not yet in the fullness of what they will be. So as believers, we are awaiting with patience the completion of our hope. A world that is no longer touched by sin or its desires. A world in which death is no more. A place where perfect justice is upheld and the corruption of Adam's sin is completely removed. A time when our struggle against sin will be over because it will be no more a city where God's peop- God dwells directly with his people, where there is no crying, there is no mourning, but there is fullness of joy and a weight of glory with Christ our King. That is what we await. That is the hope of the believer. It, it is a hope which has been secured by the work of Christ for us. That's why, though we view this hope and this reality as through a glass dimly, It is still an anchor for our souls, which goes with us and keeps us and sustains us through every situation we encounter in this life. So we find ourselves this morning, in a way, like these Israelites, in a a kind of wilderness, heirs of this promise, yet not fully enjoying the fruit, the full harvest of the work of Christ, at least not yet as such, this passage, I think, has some really valuable lessons for us to teach us how to walk in the grace and in the love and in the promise of Christ as we await the fulfillment of the hope that we have in Him. So, I have three points for you this morning, three lessons or statements, really, to take from this passage about God as He goes with us in this life and delivers us to that hope. So, First, the first point that I want to show you from this is that God is a God who goes with his people. God goes with us. We're going to be looking at God's presence. Second, we're going to see that God gives us a path to walk. We see that God makes known his ways to us. And third, we're going to be looking at how God goes before us. God is a guardian for his people. So first, let's see how God worked to remain with Israel and to go with them into this wilderness. Now, God had tested Israel's faith at Kadesh Barnea, and they failed miserably, didn't they? Of all the tragedies recorded in the Bible, that has got to rank in the top ten. I mean, an entire generation of people, a people who had seen the mighty power of God before their eyes, had rejected him, rebelled against him, murmured against him, and then fell to his wrath. It is a sad passage to read about. After reading Moses' account of this entire ordeal in chapter 1, especially that part in verse 45, where the people wept before the Lord, but whose cries did not find his ear, you might get the impression that God was done with the Israelites. But that was not the case. Though God closed the door to Canaan, he didn't abandon his people. He did not forsake the covenant he had made with them. But, as we saw last week, he continued, and he preserved that promise, announcing he would give the benefits of that land to the second generation, the sons and the daughters of these people who had rebelled against him. So in the days that immediately followed, Israel remained at Kadesh Uh, for many days. I imagine that they probably would have been content to stay there the whole time as they awaited on God to, to bring about what he had promised. But we see that God had something else in mind. He takes them by a new road, and he takes them specifically into the wilderness. For many days, the people traveled about on the mountainous areas of Mount Seir, This was not a comfortable place to live. It was hard. It was dangerous. The people moved from place to place as the Lord directed them until finally God said to Moses, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough, so turn northward. In doing so, we see that God actually brought Israel to a new place, the territory of the people of Esau who lived in Seir. Now Esau... You may, be, you may be familiar, may, may remember, was the brother of Jacob, who was the, actually the favorite son of Isaac, and the grandson of Abraham. Many years had passed since that time, and we see that God had blessed Esau and his descendants, giving them a land to call their own. They were a powerful people, who shared a common history with the Israelites, which is why we find Moses referring to the Edomites, which are Esau's descendants, as your brothers. From there, God brings the nation of Israel to the wilderness of Moab. The Moabites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. So like the Edomites, they actually shared another common history with Israel as well. Lot had traveled. Uh, Lot was um, Abraham's nephew. He had traveled with Abraham when he had first journeyed to Canaan. He had stayed with Abraham for a while until finally God had blessed him and Abraham so greatly that their wealth uh, forced them to separate from each other. And in the days that followed, God continued to show kindness to Lot, even rescuing him from Sodom. Lot, yeah, Lot had moved to Sodom, and he removed Lot out before he destroyed it. So the Moabites were descended from Lot, and they were located just north of Edom in the the southeast of Canaan. And it was here, we're told, that the last of the fighting men of that first generation died. From Moab, God leads the nation of Israel over the brook uh, Zered into the land of Ar, which was the territory of the Ammonites. The Ammonites we're also descended from Lot, so they too have this common history with Israel. But that didn't mean that they, or Edom, or Moab, were very friendly toward the, towards the Israelites. Actually, if you read other accounts, like in the book of Numbers, we'll see that Edom was very afraid of Israel. When they asked to pass through, they said, huh, no. Uh, and according to Numbers 20, they actually forced the Israelites to, to not go through the main highway as they expected, but to go through a different path. Uh, meanwhile, when, the, when Israel arrives in Moab, the Moabite king Balak, actually had hired the prophet Balaam. You may be familiar with Balaam and his talking donkey. That's the king who hired him as he saw Israel coming his way. He hired him to curse Israel because he too was afraid of them. And then finally, Ammon likewise becomes one of Israel's bitterest enemies after they have actually settled in the land. So for all of the restraint that is here, for all the way that Moses speaks of these nations as Israelites' brothers, they're not very brotherly, towards Israel. So as we look at this passage as a whole, we can see very clearly that God took the Israelites through some rough country in which they were surrounded by some fierce people. The Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites were all well established in their lands. They had pronounced boundaries, and they lived in places which they had taken by conquest from other people who were renowned for their strength. They were known as fearsome warriors. The Edomites we see had taken Seir from the Horites. The Moabites had defeated the Emim, who were like the Anakim and were counted as the Rephaim. And that, the reason that's important, I know you're going, what, oh, I don't know any of these people. I don't care about those people. What you need to know is that these are reflections, the same people equated with those people who the spies had told the people were so tall and so powerful who had instilled such fear in their brothers and said, yes, the land is good, but there's no way we can beat them. The sons of the Anakim are there. Well, as we're looking at this, we're seeing that all three of these nations had taken on people who were of the same stature and power, and they had won. The Ammonites and the uh, Edomites and the Moabites were like lions they were powerful, they were strong, they had taken on the people who had caused so much fear in the camp of Israel, and they had won. As Moses recounts all this history to the people, you can almost feel the red creeping into the cheeks of the Israelites, because these pagan people who had not received the covenant or the law and did not have this the relationship that Israel had with God, had persevered in the face of those whom they had feared, and God had given them a land and a possession to call their own. So God is bringing them through places where other people had done what he had given, and they're being reminded of their rebellion. The path that God chose for Israel was not a safe path. I mean, how much easier would it have been for Israel to have stayed at that oasis in Kadesh instead of traveling to the eastern border of Canaan through the very dens of these fearsome people? But God had a purpose in all of this. He had a purpose in sending Israel by this path, a path which tested them and stretched them and brought them face to face with what they feared a path where they learned to trust him, where they saw God contend for them and preserve them and bring them finally to the place where he had promised. God didn't send Israel into exile from the promised land to wander about in the wilderness by themselves. We see that he went with them, and as he did, he preserved them. He gives them water in the wilderness, in the wilderness, and he gives them food, manna from heaven. When they sin, he chastises them and restores them. When they repent, he reconciles them. God proves his faithfulness to Israel here in the wilds of Edom and Moab and Ammon. He didn't allow these fearsome nations to touch his loved ones. Instead, he closed the mouths of these lions like he did with Daniel and the den And he leads these people through the hills and the valleys in steadfast, unfailing love. In the tests and the trials that came on them, God did not allow Israel to be consumed. Instead, he continued to go before them as their guide, as their comforter, as their judge, and as their king. Later on, we're going to see in Deuteronomy 8 how Moses actually is going to interpret these years in the wilderness for us, explaining that God led Israel there to humble them and to test them, to know what was in their heart, whether or not this new generation would keep his commandments or not when they finally arrived at the promised land. While they were there, God fed them and kept them so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As they walked in this rough country, their clothing did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. God provided for every need they had, disciplining his people as a man disciplines his own son in love and in faithfulness. God took the people through this wilderness to prepare them to receive the gift he was giving them. So as they went in this hard time, they learned to depend on him. They learned that His he was faithful even on the hard road. And they saw God's faithfulness displayed to them as they rested in his presence with them, learning how to live in the place of plenty where he was going to bring them. God doesn't always take us on the path that we would choose for ourselves. If Christ has come and set up his kingdom, we may ask, why does he still allow all these trials and these difficulties that are in my life? Why, if, if we've been set free from the mastery of sin over us, as we read in Romans 6, why do we struggle against it day in and day out? Why doesn't God, in the moment of salvation, make every part of us holy? Wouldn't that be so much easier? Why does he take us on paths that are difficult? Well, the answer, we must say, especially looking at the way that God used Israel's time in the wilderness here, is that God takes us on these paths to perfect us in Christ and to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, calling this the treasure which we have in jars of clay, that we are, while we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed or perplexed, that we are driven to despair, No, that we are are driven by persecution, we are not driven to despair. Though we uh, are are faced trial, we are never forsaken. That though we may be struck down, we are not destroyed. That in this body we feel how we carry the death of Jesus with us, but that we do so so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. So, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So what does that mean? It means that there's a purpose to suffering a purpose for which God brings us down that road, even though we might prefer not to go down it. The path of discipleship is a path through the wilderness. The promise that keeps us in that is that Jesus tells us and assures us that he has overcome the world and that he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. As much as we may wish that God would snap His fingers and in an instant make us holy like Christ, that's not what He's chosen to do. He's chosen something better. He has chosen to build something that will endure through eternity, which produces a greater glory and a greater joy for His people. You see, trials and tribulation, the testing of our faith, which according to James 1, That is what produces steadfastness. And the full effect of steadfastness, he tells us, is perfection in Christ. The sort of completion where we lack nothing because we have received it in him. As the Son of God, Jesus did not take the easy route to glory, but for the joy that was set before him, Christ went to the cross despising the shame and thereby has secured life for us and an eternal glory for himself, which we get to participate in with him, provided we are told we suffer with him on the path of discipleship. So Jesus doesn't send his people into paths that press them or which stress them, which challenge them arbitrarily. He sends them into hard places to do hard things, and he goes with them into it so that the glory of his name would be made manifest everywhere. This is the greater inheritance and the greater glory which we have received, it is greater than that microwaved sanctification we might otherwise desire. This is a feast of glory in Christ. The thing that keeps us as we go into places where God sends us, especially the hard places, is that He promised He is with us to keep us and to prevail in us and to work through us. So as you go to work this week, know Christ is with you. As you fight lust this week, know Christ is with you. As you share your faith with your neighbor, know that Christ is with you. And one day as you go to the grave, know that Christ is there with you and that he is ready to receive you. We rejoice in the presence of God with us. The comfort that we have as we toil and strive through this temporary life, and the presence of God with us, as the Israelites had as they made their way through their wilderness, is further amplified in the way that God continued to direct them in the way they were to go. So God goes with Israel, but he also takes them on his path, and that takes us to our second we see God's path now I am a detailed person I am the guy who you all despise uh, asking all the questions before the test started because I didn't want to get blindsided by some technicality in the directions God when he sent Moses and the people out didn't just give him a heading on a compass and say alright see you when you get there no he went with them he was with his people directing them in the way they were to go and not only that, we see that God, as they went, was giving the people very detailed instructions for how they were to conduct themselves as they were making their way through three different places. First, God tells the Israelites not to pick a fight with these nations. Now, that's not because God couldn't de- defeat these nations, but rather we are told that the reason he, they are not to contend with them is that he is not going to give them any of the land that they're walking through. Now, that's going to change when Israel actually gets to the land of Canaan. But for now, they need to understand, you're guests in this land. And so, God tells them that he is not giving them Edom or Moab or Ar. Instead, he says, as in verse 5, God says to the people, Do not contend with Edom, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of a foot to tread on. And then he repeats that again. For Moab in verse 9, and then again for Ammon in verse 19. Now, they say that a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And so as Israel made their way through the wilderness, it would have been immensely tempting for them to try and go ahead and assert their dominance on these other nations, especially after they saw, like in verse 5, that these nations were afraid of them. So that is why God warns the Israelites to be careful, saying to them, Don't get distracted by what you are seeing here. This is not what I have set apart for you. I have given you something better, something that is worth the wait. I will not bless you with anything less. Now, the second thing we see in God's directions is that God tells the people to purchase food and water from these nations as they make their way through these places. Now, that might seem a little bit odd to us. I mean, what's a glass of water to someone who's passing through, right? But you have to remember, this was a desert place. These things did not come easily. Water and food are valuable resources, and a whole nation is passing through. So this would have impacted the land. By commanding the people to pay for what they were using, God was not only preserving peace between Israel and the nations it was passing through, but he was actually extending his own blessings to those nations. In verse 7, Moses explains, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. Therefore, you have lacked Nothing. Everything was a gift from God. The reason that these Israelites could afford to pay for the resources they needed and were using was because of the way God was with them and for the way he had prospered them. No other nation or people could take credit for the way Israel was coming into the land. This was the Lord's doing. And these instructions had this dual purpose of making sure that Israel didn't start a conflict with any of these other nations, and also in making sure that the nations they were traveling through knew that the Lord was the God of all the world, and that He was the one who was making the nation prosper. There are two things that I think we need to take from God's instructions to the Israelites here for our own lives. First, first, Let us learn not to settle with the lesser treasure of this world. A treasure which falls well short of what God has appointed to give us in Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns Timothy of people who were going about parading as Christians, but who were departing from the words and the teachings of Jesus, imagining that godliness was a means of earthly gain. Now Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain, because we bring nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But he also makes it clear that Jesus is not a means for us to gain earthly wealth the gain of godliness is deposited in the banks of heaven. Don't confuse the the temporary blessings of earth with the eternal benefits of God's grace. God has given us something much greater. All wealth in this life is a gift from God. But Jesus did not come and die on the cross to make you a millionaire or to prosper you in temporary earthly wealth and prosperity. Those who wander after such things, Paul says, wander away from the true gospel, and they pierce themselves with all sorts of pains. They cannot bear to be parted from their money, the illusion of power or security, or the feeling of influence that it gives them. That is their God. For the man and the woman of God, there is a much greater inheritance to pursue. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and all these things, all these incidentals that you need, they will be added to you. As for you, O man of God, Paul instructs Timothy, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How easy it is as we make our way through this wilderness to want to take hold of the things that we see, the things that we can taste, the things that we can touch. How easy it is to want to settle on things that seem to be within our own control. Brothers and sisters, don't believe the lie. Don't let Satan distract you with the flashing lights of vanity fair from the eternal glory of God's celestial city where there is no need of sun or moon or stars, no need of electric light, because God is there, and He Himself is the light of His people. Stay the course. Treasure Him. You will not be disappointed. The second thing I want to point out to you about this detail about how God commanded the Israelites to walk as they were making their way through these nations, which I think is relevant for our own lives as believers making our way through this world, is to see how God actually makes Israel a blessing to the world even while they're in this time of wandering through the wilderness. This this whole thing is headed toward a time and a place where God is going to bring his people to this promised land to dwell with him, to be a light to the nations. Now, we're not there yet in the book of Deuteronomy, but already we're starting to see how God is pouring out blessings on his people, which are then overflowing in blessings on these other people. So as fear took heart or took hold of the hearts of these otherwise fearsome people, we see not only the restraining hand of God on them, but we also see how God was blessing those people through Israel, so that they were seeing that there is only one God who rules the earth. The credit for Edom overcoming those Horites and the, the credit for, the, for Moab defeating the Amim and for Ammon the Rephaim and even these Kephtarim, which are likely the forerunners of the Philistines, all of that goes to God. The reason we're being told about these other conquests that other nations had and how they got the proper they did is to show us that God is the one who raises up and puts down. The reason these other nations had their land is because God gave it to them. That's what Moses is proving to the people as he's ushering them to Canaan. And the reason he does that to Israel is so they will know also that God was going to deliver on his promise. More than that, God tells Israel actually to use the blessings which he had given them to be a blessing to the nations they were among even though these nations didn't receive the Israelites in a way that was worthy of God's chosen people, we still see how they are are paying out of the the overflow of their own blessings for what they're consuming, for what they're using. And so all these other nations are actually being blessed by the people as they go. This is a work of peace that God has done. What a statement this makes about God and his love to the world. Further still, what does this say to us about the way we are called to use the blessings which God has given to us to love the world around us? There is nothing that we have which hasn't first been given to us by God. He has given to us what he, in out of his own pleasure, and he continues to use that and the way he calls us to use our wealth. Let us reflect the Spirit of God, that giving spirit To give as we have been given to. To use our time and our resources, our, our money, our gifts, everything we have in a way that exalts King Jesus and shows the world that our hearts are not set on the blessings, but on the one who gives the blessings. And then let us use those resources to beckon them to come and to receive them as their king as well. Whatever you do, we are commanded Do it for the glory of God. Now finally we come to God's guardianship. As we come to the end of our passage, we see that things begin to take a little bit different tone. While God had told Israel not to fight with these other nations, in verse 24, he says, Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over to the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, King of Heshbon and his land, begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now if you remember two years ago when we first started the book of Joshua, you'll remember how Rahab had reported to the spies, how everyone in Jericho was afraid because they had heard the report. That is what was happening here. War is on the horizon. And this was a command to the fighting men of Israel to strap up and be ready. We were told back in verses 14 and 15 that the fighting men of that first generation had all died This wasn't a peaceful dying from old age. It was actually, we're told in verse 15, that God's hand of judgment was against them. Since the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had all perished. So when we come to verse 24, this command to rise up and to go to war is coming to Moses, Joshua, Caleb, and the children of the men who had refused to go up at Kadesh Barnea. This is a a new step for a new generation. And from this moment on, the people of Israel are going to start to receive what God had appointed to give them. Their patience and their endurance is about to be rewarded, and judgment is about to be poured out on the Canaanites for their sin. Now we know from verse 5 and other passages in the Bible that the nations who witnessed how God went toe to toe with Egypt, how he brought them out and how he delivered them through the wilderness, how he blessed them and went with them into battle, that they were afraid. They saw how God had set favor on this people and they were afraid of them. But this coming, uh, in, this coming battle with Sihon the Amorite, and later with Og the king of Bashan, which we're going to look at those next week, is going to further the effect. In verse 25, God says that awe is going to come on the people, on the people of the world, that they are going to hear reports of what had happened, of what God had done for Israel, and that they're going to tremble and be in anguish because of them. The Lord is a mighty warrior; he fights for his people. This battle between uh, Israel and Sihon and Israel and Og was an opportunity for the sons of those men whose bodies fell in the wilderness for their disobedience to show a different kind of spirit that actually desired to serve and obey the Lord. The fall of these kings is is a sounding of the trumpet of God's judgment on all the Canaanites in Joshua's day. And the result of this battle is that everyone under the heavens is going to know the glory of the one true God. They're going to know that God is the guardian of his people. The day of the Lord is a day of joy for God's people because it is a day of deliverance. It is a day when God will bring his people home where he will hold the wicked accountable and where he will judge the whole world. On that day, the mouth of the scoffer will be shut. The hands of the wicked will be stopped. The world will see and know and it will quake at the great and awful day when the Lion of Judah shakes his mane and roars his judgment. We get a picture of that in Revelation 6. And John, speaking of what he saw in a vision and the breaking of the sixth seal, says that day is coming. And the time of God's patience will come to an end. That day is coming. The Lord is the guardian of His people. He counts their tears. He knows their sufferings. And He perfects them and will glorify them with Christ. God will defend perfect justice. He will not clear the guilty or look upon sin with favor. As believers, we are looking forward to this day of Christ's return, right? Because it is fulfillment of our hope. It is the consummation of the promise. The moment when our time in this world, between worlds, comes to an end. And when we rejoice for the, for the face of our Creator. At the same time, as we look forward and we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us also feel the burden of those lost souls which apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus will not receive such a deliverance from sin but will go into judgment for it. The time is short. Our calling is clear. A call to wield a sword that does not kill but which makes the wounded whole. Let us walk in this wilderness as Christ calls us to do with him as our head sharing the love of Christ and the gospel with this world calling people to repentance and faith and trusting in the day of Christ's return. Let's pray. Lord, as we have studied this passage this morning we thank you that you are a God who who pours out blessing after blessing even in the midst of your enforcement of perfect justice you still went with your people. As you, as you sent them into the wilderness, you continued to direct them. You taught them the way. You led them to the promised land. You protected them from their enemies, fierce as they were, so that not even an arrow was shot at them. Not even the words of Balaam could touch them. You are a God who protects your people and loves your people. And you have shown your mercy to this world. And Father, there's a great task that's been laid before us. Jesus has commissioned us as the church to go and to speak the good news of the kingdom everywhere. And we pray, Father, that you would motivate us to obedience this week. And as we do, I pray, Father, that you would keep us and comfort us with your presence, that you would make your way clear to us, that you would give us hearts that are eager to follow after you, and that in doing so, the world would see and know the glory of Christ. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.